Hi everybody, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb, and it has been a long time, everybody. We've missed you. It's been almost a month since our last episode, which is the longest amount of time we've gone since we started the show over a year ago. But we have a really good excuse. Uh, one, my wife had a new baby, so I've been taking care of her. And two, Andrew and I, uh, our softball league started last month. You know, we gotta have our priorities. Yeah, and ordinarily that doesn't interfere with our podcasting, except when I took a softball to the jaw and cut my lip open so I couldn't talk for a week. But it's healed, as you can tell. Andrew can talk again. All right. We are in the middle of the French and Indian War, and so far the British have been suffering mostly defeat after defeat, a victory here or there, but pretty much it's been an utter disaster. And the French have been winning battle after battle, but somehow they're really not winning the war, even though they're winning the battles. They're having all sorts of uh, logistic issues on getting supplies from France. Also, France is doing very poorly in the Seven Years' War everywhere else in Europe. And this is kind of taking away from a lot of the supplies and manpower that could be being sent to bolster the French in North America. But because it's going so bad everywhere else, the king and parliament are very hesitant to send reinforcements to America because they want them to keep France safe. So let's just do a quick recap of what we covered last time. The British have been under the leadership of the Earl of Loudoun, and he has just left the colonies, and he's headed up to Lewisburg, which is in modern-day Nova Scotia. And that didn't go so well, and while he was gone, Fort William Henry was totally defeated by the French and their Indian allies. To make matters worse, General Loudoun became even more hated than the King of France because right before he left for his invasion of Lewisburg, he banned all the ships from leaving any ports because he was worried that they would go trade with the French and snitch on what his plans were. But Andrew, if he's banning all trafficking uh, of ships, how are people going to make any money or get any uh, food into the town? Now you know why they hate him so much. So picture yourself having a field of grain and you harvest it, but you can't export it anywhere because nobody at the docks will take the grain because they don't want it sitting on the docks. So there is literally mountains of food sitting there rotting. And the commander-in-chief's just like, well, my, my expedition's more important. And he gets there, and he fails anyway. These defeats pretty much lead to the collapse of the British government. And soon after, he is recalled by a man coming to power who we're going to talk more about, a guy named William Pitt. So the French Canadians are doing everything they can to try and get a leg up. They just want to end this war at some kind of stalemate so they don't lose everything. And they're trying to use some sneaky tactics. Caleb, you recall the German Palatines, right? Yes, Andrew, I do. Uh, for those of you listening, if you recall many episodes back, we did an episode on the Four Kings going over to visit Queen Anne in London. If you recall, she asked the Four Kings if it would be okay if she could send these German Palatine refugees to America so they could have a place to farm and live. So one half of the group went and settled in a place we now call Herkimer, New York, Back then it was known as German Flats. And some others went with Christopher de Graffenried, and they settled and founded New Bern down in North Carolina, which caused the Tuscarora War. So these are the same group of people there, and they've been growing up pretty much in their own community, still speaking German. Many of them, the ones that came as young people, are now the grandparents. So there's two, three generations of Germans living in this area. And they've pretty much settled in and gotten along pretty well with their Mohawk and Oneida neighbors. But the governor of New France decides that maybe he'll send some covert people down into the Mohawk River and see if he can get these German people to switch sides. Because if they could get some people down there to go over to their side, 
Well, they could take over the whole northern part of New York. Wisely for the Germans, though, uh, they didn't think that sounded like a great idea, switching. Even though the French were winning all the battles, the Germans didn't think it would be in their best interest to side with the French because then they're going to find themselves in the same situation that a lot of these Iroquois nations have found themselves in past war, and that's stuck right in the middle, and you're the one that is having your whole family killed and everything. So they declined to help the French in any way. Unfortunately, what they didn't do is they didn't tell the British the French were down there offering these uh, suggestions. And their well-to-do neighbors, the Oneida, decided to tell William Johnson that this was going on. And when William Johnson hears that there's French spies trying to convince these German minorities to switch sides, it's cause for concern. So he promptly sends inquiries over to make sure that they're loyal, and they assure that they are. But the French are not very happy at being rebuffed this way and they say you know what we're going to teach these germans a lesson how dare they be loyal to the british crown what jerks so they assemble a force of about 300 people at lachine and on october 20th 1757 troops leave lachine and they travel up the saint lawrence river along the shores of lake ontario to the spot that we talk about all the time the mouth of the oswego river where the burned out oswego fort used to be and from there, they travel up the river and cross the Oneida Carry, where Fort Bull used to be before the French burned it. And they're just having a, a grand old time because there's nobody there to stop them. And they descend on German flats, and they arrive near the settlement on November 11th. Now, German flats isn't a huge area. It only had about 60 homes, 300 settlers, and the only defense they had was about five blockhouses. And the Oneida may have snitched on the Germans to the British, but they had also warned them, saying, hey, we heard from our Mohawk brothers that the French are coming down and you guys might want to do something. And don't know why they didn't think to defend themselves, but they really didn't make any kind of preparations at all, and they were completely caught by surprise. So the next day on November 12th, at around 3 a.m., the French forces launched an attack on German flats from the hills north of the village. The five blockhouses that they have are quickly surrendered before... You know, they can do pretty much anything. And 40 people are killed or drowned trying to escape. All the buildings were destroyed, every last one. And more than 150 of the inhabitants, men, women, children, including the mayor and their doctor and some militia officers were captured and taken back to Montreal. Now, not far away from German flats at the time was actually one of the higher ranking British officers, a man named George Howe. And he heard about it, and he quickly rushed to German flats to see if he could save the Germans. But when he got there, all he found was a smoky ruin. Literally every house and blockhouse had been burned, and the prisoners were gone. Luckily for these German prisoners, I don't know if it's because they spoke German or if the Indians that uh, helped kidnap them weren't interested in adopting anybody, but almost all of these prisoners actually ended up being used for prisoner exchange for French prisoners. Elsewhere in the world, King George II, he wasn't from England like many of the English kings. He was actually a German native. And his hometown of Hanover was invaded by the French. And his son, the Earl of Cumberland, was forced to surrender his army in Europe. With all these problems going on within the British government, it's basically starting to break down. There is these split factions within the British government. And some of them are saying, we need to surrender to the French. Some of them are saying, let's just make a treaty with the French crown. 
And some people are saying, no, we need to completely wipe out French influence in all of these Commonwealth areas. With this vacuum, uh, a man named William Pitt steps into the stage. This is the man who Pittsburgh is named after. And William Pitt is on the far side of the parliament that wants to basically completely wipe out France and all of their power globally. At one point, it's looking like the French are going to lose almost all of their colonies. And Pitt still isn't satisfied in years to come. And he says, oh, come on, let's keep pushing it to the French. He wants to wipe them out. And he's going to ascend to the British prime minister position. And right away, he sets into work trying to save the British Empire. He had a much more aggressive strategy than everybody in the past. Uh, so many times in European war, the rich people and the nobles were perfectly fine just sending people to their deaths. And then they would have tea and crumpets with the, the other enemy generals and, and just do this for hundreds of years. He wanted to end this and he wanted to really put a hurting on the French. One thing he does is right away he sends a letter to America telling Loudon that he's fired and get back to Europe. Then he tells the colonial governments that hey, guess what? We are no longer going to uh, keep annoying these uh, colonial officers and we're going to start paying them full price. Secondly, he tells the militia officers that they will be treated as equals amongst the, the regular commissioned officers. And the only difference is, is a colonel would still be underneath a commissioned colonel but a captain couldn't bump him around. So in theory, a militia colonel would still be able to order commissioned captain. If you remember, this is a huge issue that George Washington was having when he was trying to command because he was really upset that even though he was a colonel, a lowly captain could order him around. And thirdly, this was a big one. William Pitt uh, issues a statement to the North American colonies telling them that they can raise as many troops as they want and England will reimburse them 100%. Wow. So totally free army that the British are paying for? Yeah, they literally just get to make as much army as they want, and it's completely free. That's great. Uh, I mean, and I'm sure that the British 10 years from now won't try and get money back from the colonies by taxing them at all. No, Andrew, you don't understand. It's free. So once the colonists hear that they have all the money for free in the world to raise huge armies... They actually raised tens of thousands of militia soldiers within the first several months. Now, William Pitt really wanted a man named George Howe, uh, coincidentally the same officer that had rushed to German flats to see if he could save it from being burned. He wanted to put him in charge of all the North American forces. But due to political pressure, he ended up appointing a man named James Amber Crombie or as he would soon be called, Mrs. Nanny Crombie. That doesn't sound derogatory at all. And instead, William Howe will end up being the second in command under Abercrombie. Now, Andrew, this guy Howe, when I first read this, I was thinking to myself, I know I've read that name before, and anybody here that's done any reading into early American history will know that there was a man named William Howe in the Revolutionary War, and he was kind of a big deal. He was actually the commander-in-chief of all British forces during the American Revolution. These guys are related. General William Howe is actually the, the little brother of George Howe here in the French and Indian War. So this Howe family is literally going to be fighting in North America for 40, 50 years. So Abercrombie gets over here, Caleb, and Pitt and the cabinet there decide that they are going to, again, try and attack French positions on Lake Champlain. This is like the third or fourth time that this has happened. We recall that 
There was the original Battles of Lake George and then Fort William Henry. If you remember back 150 years ago when we're first talking about Champlain and his original contact with the Mohawk, the battle happened right here on Lake Champlain at the same spot that we're still fighting over, a place called Ticonderoga. Now we're referring to this fort as Ticonderoga, but at the time it's actually still under French possession and they referred to it as Fort Carillon. The British began amassing their army near the remains of Fort William Henry, which was at the southern end of Lake George, but as we mentioned last time, it had been destroyed by the French the previous year. The army numbered 16,000 men. That's an absolute absurd number. Yeah, Andrew, this is 16,000 men is actually more men than the entire population of Boston. And the whole territory of New France at this time maybe had a population of just over 50,000. When Braddock was defeated, his forces were only 2,000. So it's a big number. And when Braddock came, the 2,000 people was the largest army ever assembled in North America in colonial warfare. So things have escalated very quickly. Sir William Johnson was also able to contribute, and he was able to get a number of Mohawks to join in the expedition including a young teenager named Joseph Brandt. And we're going to give you this guy's full background later, but remember the name Joseph Brandt because this is one Mohawk guy that if you want to talk about the most influential Native Americans in American history, he and his sister may have no other comparison after Pocahontas and Squanto, and nobody knows about him. On July 5th, 1758, this massive horde of troops embark on boats to take them to the north end of Lake George which they get there the next day. It is said that the lake looked like it was covered with flies. It was just so black with ships when the French went out and looked at it. Montclam, you remember him from our previous battles down at Oswego, he arrived back down at the French fort on June 30th. And when he got there, he found that it was significantly under garrison for what they were dealing with. They had about 3,500 men and enough food for perhaps nine days. And they got 16,000 troops on the way to attack them. Now, after disembarking from Lake George, the English army is traveling along the Lachute River to Fort Ticonderoga. Because remember, Ticonderoga, that's at the south end of Champlain, and they're connected by this small river called the Chute between Lake George and Lake Champlain. Now, Abercrombie, once he gets his men over there, he decides that he's going to take a day and rest and organize his forces. Because it's a lot of work getting people off boats, and he doesn't want to go right away. So in the meantime, our old friend Montcalm is pondering what to do. At the time, he was promised a thousand French soldiers and a thousand Indian allies that were supposed to be there any day. And he decides that he's not going to wait for the reinforcements. And this ends up becoming the first major battle in the French and Indian War where the French have no Indian allies. Montcalm does not want Abercrombie's forces to lay siege even though he's outnumbered five to one. He figures uh, if we're going to lose, we're going to lose out there. Uh, maybe we can surprise him. So he orders all of his troops to march one mile south to a hill overlooking the road where he knows the English forces are going to have to walk before getting to Ticonderoga. He begins having trees felled all around, making a very quick makeshift fort. And then he does something unique. It almost sounds a lot like the walls that the Iroquois were using way back in the 15 and 1600s when people were first meeting them. They made these thick scrub walls 30 yards out from the timbers that they made of the fort. And they threw them with bramble and sharp sticks. 
It was actually what the French called an ambuscade, and it was a little more complex than that because what they would do is they would make sure that whatever branches you put down, you made sure that all the pointy ends were sticking straight out at you. And they would even kind of shove them in the ground so that they were at an angle, just to cause the most inconvenience when you're trying to travel up through. While Montclam is getting all this set up, the army that's disembarking from Lake George is traveling along the Lachute River with a small force that's doing reconnaissance. And they run into a French captain who's trying to get his troops back to the French lines. And they run into Phineas Lyman's Connecticut Regiment. And it sparks a small skirmish in the woods. The British are pretty successful. They end up killing 150 French and taking another 150 captive. And the British only lose 10. But the problem is one of those 10 is General Howe. He was near the action. And he decided to get involved, but then somebody took a pop shot at him, struck him right in the head, and he was dead. And just like that, Abercrombie is without his number two guy. But we're going to see pretty clearly that even though Abercrombie was the number one, it was actually Howe. So the next day, Abercrombie not having a second command, this is the first time he's actually going to run into the French forces. He realizes that they've made a defensive position on the hill right between him and the fort. And they're not even in the fort. And he notices these brambles and these sharpened sticks. Maybe he didn't really appreciate how difficult it would be in because you see, he kind of stayed in the back of the line and kind of was, was I picture like uh, the, the Russian officers in uh, World War II where they're just sending people forward and they're all falling and you just keep sending them. So he decides he's going to attempt a head-on charge of the fort. And the brambles and sharpened sticks prove to be very effective. You see, they're thick enough that they're slowing down the redcoats and bottling them up, but they're not thick enough to provide cover. So a musket ball can get through the brambles and hit the redcoats, uh, but the Redcoats can't get through. So Montcalm's men are just pouring musket fire at the English for eight hours straight. Abercrombie is sending wave after wave after wave. And I have some quotes here for some uh, young privates. I hid under an oak tree. A man could not stand erect without being hit by a musket ball any more than he could standing in a shower without the rain falling on him. And another one from Massachusetts wrote, the men were cut down like grass. The French position was so strong that they were able to just lay down direct fire on the British forces and they had the advantage all day and it just became a killing field. It became a slaughterhouse, similar to a World War I battle where the officer says, everyone get up out of their, you know, their foxhole, out of their ditch. And they all charge and everyone gets mowed down, wave after wave. Then Abercrombie finally decided, hey, I've just lost a lot of men. I haven't counted them yet, but it looks like I've lost a lot, so I'm going to order a retreat. Then the retreat turns into a panic, and the whole army by the next day was on boats rowing back to the south end of Lake George. The French were outnumbered five to one, and here are the battle tolls. French killed 100, with 500 wounded and about 150 captured. British 1,000 killed, 10 times the number of the French, with 1,500 wounded and 100 missing. This, by far, is worse than Braddock's defeat. Not by percentage, because you'll still see that there were 16,000 troops and only 1,000 were killed, versus Braddock lost a third to half. 
But the French said that when they came out the next day to look at what had happened, they saw shoes everywhere, empty shoes. And what had happened was the troops had fled so quickly that their shoes and boots had gotten stuck in the mud and they were in such panic that they wouldn't even turn around to grab their footwear. This was the largest number of British casualties in a battle up until 1814 at the Battle of New Orleans. William Pitt receives word of this defeat in August and very quickly thereafter he writes to Abercrombie on September 18th that the king has judged proper that you should return to England. Historians go back and they look at this battle and they still can't figure out Abercrombie. He orders a head-on attack. He doesn't order anybody to flank around and even try to get at the position. He wasn't even on the front line when he was ordering all this. He just thought that with the overwhelming numbers that eh, they can take it. And you want to hear something really funny, Andrew? He had a large amount of cannons with himself. Instead of bringing the cannons with them to attack the fort, he, he gets this idea that he'll send the cannons on a, a bateau around the fort and try to set it up on a hill. And at which point he ends up losing half of his cannons get sunk by the French on these bateaux and never even get there. And then the other half that make it to the shore, by the time the cannons arrive on the shore, the battle's already over. It is a huge lesson in utter incompetence and not doing your homework on how to do a battle. Meanwhile, while Abercrombie's getting his butt totally handed to him by the French, a guy named John Bradstreet comes up with a very bold plan. He's going to try and capture Fort Frontenac. You remember Fort Frontenac, right, Caleb? Yeah, that's the one where uh, Frontenac named after himself. That's he? exactly <laughs> the one. It's up at the mouth of the St. Lawrence River leading into Lake Ontario. And it's been destroyed a few times over the years. Bradstreet assembles an army in Schenectady of about 3,600 troops. And they come from all over the Northeast. These are mainly militia. There's almost no regular troops going on this expedition. And so he sets out with bold plans. And by the time he gets to Fort Oswego, so he's marched all the way from Schenectady, past the Oneida Carry, to the ruins of Fort Oswego. But by then, about 600 people have said, eh, this really isn't for me. I don't like walking through these woods. And so he's down to about 3,000 men. It was pretty rough going because the area's been deserted for the last two years. Woods were overgrown. The trails were needing to be recut. And then the water levels on the rivers were pretty low, too. So it was slow going. They got a small flotilla of boats and they crossed Lake Ontario, landing without opposition about one mile from Fort Frontenac on August 25th. The night after the landing, Bradstreet's men are able to get guns set up and dig trenches towards the fort. And the French really have no idea what's going on until it's too late. The following day on August 26th, the British get their guns and they open fire. The British and the French, they're shooting their guns back and forth, and it's not really doing much. The French, however, have some ships here guarding the fort that they have sitting here on Lake Ontario. They decide, maybe we should try and get out of the harbor before we get trapped. But the British start turning their cannons on them, and then they run aground. Following a brief council of war, the commander in charge of the fort, a man named Noyan, decides, eh, do we have a white flag anywhere? Somebody got a white flag? They got out their white flag and they surrender the fort. It's a pretty minor skirmish. The French end up losing two men, and the British only have 11 wounded. 
But even though this is kind of a non-important battle as far as people wounded or killed, like we said, this fort is right on the crest of the St. Lawrence River. And this is basically the main trade vein into French Canada. This is where they get all the furs. This is where they get basically their entire economy. So when the British capture this fort, this has basically been their trading post for the whole Great Lakes region. And they end up capturing over 800,000 livres from the trading post. That's the French version of pounds, basically. $2 million in today's money. Even though they've just cut off the supply line, it also had some great strategic value because now they've cut off the French getting down to Fort Niagara. Now they can't get down the St. Lawrence to get into Lake Ontario to get down to Fort Niagara. So they've just cut that fort off. Not only Fort Niagara, but Fort Duquesne, Fort Detroit, Fort Michilimackinac, all these other minor forts that are in the Ohio country, there's now almost no way that these people are going to get reinforcements or supplies. So since I just mentioned the Ohio country, let's talk about the Ohio country. You guys probably thought that we had totally forgotten about it, but we haven't. Over the last three years of the war, the Shawnee and the Western Delaware and these Mingos and others have been raiding unchecked into the western parts of the Middle Colonies. If you remember our friend George Washington, he's been put in charge of the whole Virginia militia. And that sounds exciting, but it really hasn't been so much for him. He's in command of thousands of soldiers, but he realizes that these people are totally inept. If there's one good quality that Washington has learned from his time with Braddock, it's that these troops need discipline and training because otherwise they're just haphazardly out there in the woods. So that's mainly what he's focusing on is just training these soldiers and then sending them out. Now, he personally is not going out with the troops all the time, but his regiments that he's commanding fight in 20 different battles over the 10 months that he's in charge. They lose a third of the men, mainly through just skirmishes back and forth. This sounds bad, but through Washington's efforts, it means that the focus is taken off of people raiding into Virginia, and it's more on fighting these soldiers back and forth. Washington is still pretty miffed, though, since he's never actually given a British command commission. Sure, he's had all of these campaigns. He's put his professional life on hold in order to do a service for his country. And he keeps expecting a letter to come in the mail any day of a royal commission authorship in the regular army, but it just never comes. And so when he hears that General Loudon is close by, he actually travels to his headquarters and arranges a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him, begging for a commission. And Loudon says, no, we don't have any to give out to colonial militia and doesn't even give him the time of day. Washington never even bothers reapplying again for the rest of his life for a British commission. You know, it makes me wonder if they had just given Washington a captain's commission even, how much it might have changed American history. Because all he wanted was basically to serve a country that would appreciate him. And there's no doubt in my mind that if they made him a commissioned colonel, he would have been fighting for the Redcoats against the Americans 20 years later. We'll never know. With all this raiding happening and all of these British defeats happening over and over again, individual Iroquois nations, especially the Seneca and the Northern Mohawks, have been actively supporting the French. And others have been nominally helping with intelligence when it suits their interests. So if I'm an Oneida person 
and I hear that the British are launching an expedition up Lake George, well, I could go to a French fort and say, I've got some information. Uh, what's it worth to you guys? And I could get paid handsomely in trade goods for this information. So it doesn't affect my nation. I'm worried about helping my village out with supplies. So I'm going to go to the French or English. The British Superintendent of Indian Affairs, we've been calling him by his proper name, William Johnson, has been working feverishly to hammer out an agreement that will get the whole Confederacy to turn and back the British. This war is happening all around Iroquois territory. And if the Redcoats want to win, they're going to need the Iroquois and every other native people they can get to come over to their side. Because without them, nothing's going to happen. Also, there's a contingent of politicians in Pennsylvania. We've talked about the Quakers quite a bit. And what are Quakers known for besides their oatmeal, Caleb? Pacifism, peace, love, good old hippie. Peace, love, join us. Yes. Anyway, this political party of pacifist Quakers call themselves the Friendly Association. And they begin lobbying in the Pennsylvania Assembly for peace among the Indians. They blame the war on the colonies for all their broken promises, which was true, 100%. And they said, if we just dealt with these Indians diplomatically and treated them fairly, that's how we can end this war. We don't need to keep killing each other. Let's just love one another. Whatever happened to the Quakers? They're still around. Are they? Yeah, here in Farmington. Huh. There's a meeting house. You know, we're descended from Quaker settlers. Well, I've always heard the term meeting house. Whenever they say meeting house, that's basically a Quaker church? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there's one right here in Farmington. Hmm. Rick Nicholson's mother is a Quaker. No kidding. Yeah. So this contingent of Quakers just want to get everything back to the way it was back when William Penn ran the place and everybody got along with everybody else by working out their disagreements with diplomacy. So in October 1758 in Easton, Pennsylvania, Johnson becomes instrumental with these Quaker people in ratifying what's known as the Treaty of Easton. They were also able to get a chief of the Delaware named Tidiescon, and he was very much in favor of making peace with the English, mainly because he was hoping that if he made an individual peace, he could get his Delaware people recognized as an independent nation and they could kind of get out from being a prop of the Iroquois Confederacy. Of course, William Johnson knew that they had to get the Six Nations on their side, and so once their representatives showed up, they kindly told TDS Khan that "Ah, the Six Nations are going to take it from here. And TDS Khan realized that his chance for independence was kind of removed, but he still agreed to help with the peace process. He makes a speech on October 20th to the Iroquois and to his colonial counterparts, and this is one of those... Sad quotes. Here's his quote. I sit there as a bird on a bow. I look about and do not know where to go. Let me therefore come down upon the ground and make that my own by a good deed, and I shall then have a home forever. Kind of implying that, you know, just give me enough land to be buried on, and that's all I'll need. As we mentioned, his plea pretty much goes unanswered. The colonists and the Iroquois work out a partnership to squeeze Tidiescon out of power and negotiate a restoration of peace on their own terms. It's politics. They realize that they really need the Six Nations more than they need this wayward Delaware tribe, and the Delaware have agreed to peace. So, But one thing they do agree to do is look into this walking purchase fiasco. And most of the people, the colonists, had never even heard about this thing. They didn't know 
what had happened. For those that are just joining us on the French and Indian War, what episode did we talk about the walking purchase? Uh, the one called Haudenosaunee Diplomacy. Okay, so if anybody's wondering what we're talk talking about, uh, check out that episode. And so they actually agree to uh, do an official inquiry and reimburse somewhat the Eastern Delawares for the land. So it's not a total loss. It's not like they get completely cut out. But they don't get everything they wanted. But who does in treaty negotiations? The treaty is finally signed after a conference between British colonial officials and more than 500 chiefs representing 15 different peoples. This pretty much successfully neutralizes the French alliance with these Aboriginal peoples in the Ohio Valley. And not all of them go over to the English side, but it at least lets them stay neutral so the British can now campaign into the West. One more thing that the Friendly Association of Pennsylvania pushed for was a firm boundary. They wanted a border saying, all right, this is Indian land and this is colonial land. And we're going to draw a line and we're going to stay on our side and you're going to stay on your side. No more of this ambiguous stuff. It's not going to be ratified till after the war is over, but they really want to make sure that these issues don't come up again. In a lot of the treaties, things were worded like uh, one day's march from the big hill or three long strides from the big creek. And so colonists were taking advantage of the loose wording to constantly be trying to take more than was intended. So now the British have complete assurance that they can campaign the Indians feel a little more comfortable thinking maybe this time the British will honor their promises. Spoiler alert, they're not. But for the short term, it's going to work out. And with that, they turn their attention towards Fort Duquesne. So let's talk about Fort Duquesne. The same time that Frontenac is falling, the British are making plans to do an expedition to the Ohio country. And now they've got a man named John Forbes, and he's planning on returning to the Forks of the Ohio. Now, Andrew, this Fort Duquesne, if you recall, this is the fort that Braddock was trying to get to when he got massacred several years earlier that sparked this whole war. And we mentioned that Braddock came with 2,000 men. Well, that's not enough. So Forbes is going to come with 6,000. William Johnson, I mean, this guy's a busy guy. He was even able to get members of the Cherokee and Chicaba tribes to lend support in exchange for British gifts. And you remember, these guys are all the way down in the south. And guess who's back, Caleb? Who? George. George Washington's back again? George Washington is back again. For the fourth time, George Washington now has gone to the Forks of the Ohio. This will be his fourth trip. First time he goes there to deliver the letter to the French commander, and they say, pound sand, and he goes back. Then he goes and has the incident with Jumonville and has to surrender at Fort Necessity. Then he goes again with Braddock and they have to retreat. And now he's going a fourth time with General Forbes. Is this time going to actually uh, work out good for him? Because it seems like every time he's gone, he's gotten his butt handed to him. Well, let's find out. Instead of marching to Fort Duquesne using Braddock's Road by way of Fort Cumberland, Forbes decides to advance directly west towards the fort. He figures this new route will shorten the march by 35 miles. Yeah, but what people don't realize is he was probably looking at a map and thinking, hey, why is this trail going in squiggle lines? If we just go in a straight line, we can get to there faster. Anybody that's ever walked through the Allegheny Mountains know there's reasons roads don't go straight. So he starts building a road in Carlisle and then on to Shippensburg. If you've ever been down to southern Pennsylvania, you know exactly where I'm talking about. And they travel west. Now Washington writes that he really thinks that it would be best to use Braddock's Road and not waste time building a new one. Washington kind of had a point, but he also kind of had an ulterior motive. And that's 
If they use Braddock's Road, when the West eventually inevitably opens up for settlement, it will be access for Virginian settlers to get into the Ohio country. But if there's this new road built from Pennsylvania into the Ohio country, well, that means that this area around the forks of the Ohio will be Pennsylvania territory. And where is Pittsburgh today, Caleb? Pittsburgh's in Pennsylvania. And if you remember, uh, Washington uh, is a board member for the Ohio Company, the Ohio Company from Virginia. So any parts of Ohio that are going to be access from Pennsylvania are going to be making profits for the people in Pennsylvania, not the people in Virginia. So to say that Washington had pure motives is not entirely true. But he's still, I mean, there is a road already there, so why not use it? Road construction is not going so well, and Forbes writes Washington and says, we could use some help building the road. Why don't you and your regiment head up here? On October 12th, General Forbes' army is surprised by a French attack, roughly about 40 miles from Fort Duquesne. It was mainly French Canadians and native allies, and the British kind of, again, get their butt handed to them. They lose several officers, and dozens of other soldiers are killed or captured. The British end up falling back and regrouping. And they've kind of got an ace up their sleeve. There's a man who was a Moravian missionary, a guy named Christian Frederick Post. And at the time, he was very well known among Native American villages in the Ohio River country. And he goes with some Native Americans to these different tribes in the area and begins just negotiating with them and encouraging them to at least stay neutral. And they end up saying, yeah, actually the French have been frustrating us. They've promised us all these gifts and they keep saying that they can't get any supplies in because something happened up in Canada and they can't get anything here and we're really sick of their promises. So they start deserting the French and he tells them that, you know, a treaty's been signed and we're going to agree to stay out of the land west of the Appalachians after the war is over. So they're like, well, that sounds good. So why mess with this massive force of British people coming in? The last major action of this whole Forbes expedition of the British happens on the night of November 12th. And a small force of just like 30 French Canadians and 150 Native Americans attack British troops guarding a horse herd. But the problem that happens is General Forbes sends Colonel Washington's regiment out and he also sends Colonel Hugh Mercer's troops out. I have to correct you right here, Andrew. I have it written down that they were actually nerf herders, not horse herders. The problem is that Mercer and Washington get mixed up and they both think that each other are this French contingent of troops that they're after and they begin firing on each other. Details are kind of sketchy. You know, Washington says that Mercer fired on him and of course Mercer says that Washington fired on him. But whatever the case, Washington soon realizes that they're shooting each other and bravely he rides his horse down into the line while they're spraying bullets of each other and he pulls out his sword and begins shouting to both sides to stop firing. So, you know, Washington's nothing but brave. Unfortunately, about 35 soldiers are shot and two officers are killed too. So it could have been a lot worse if Washington hadn't stepped in. That's the problem when you fight a night battle. The French garrison back at Fort Duquesne is in horrible shape at this point. Their Indian allies have deserted them. They're getting no reinforcements because Fort Frontenac has been destroyed by the British and captured. The walls of the fort are rotting away. They're getting no reinforcements of troops. And they hear that thousands of British and Indians are on the way. He doesn't know this, but the Cherokee and Chicaba warriors have decided to desert because they think that it's taking too long. But still, there's a lot of people coming, and they realize that there's no way that we can hold the fort right now. The best thing we can do 
is destroy it, retreat, and try again next year to retake it. The commander of the fort at Duquesne is a guy named Captain Francois-Marie Le Marchand de Lenéry. What's with these French people and these long names? It sounds really frilly. But he said that he would not give the British the satisfaction of taking the fort. So by golly, on November 24th, he ordered it burned to the ground. And the French officer said, by golly? He said, by golly. <laughs> Direct quote. And he takes his roughly 500 men and they head They up. take their ball and go home. Yep. George Washington, the following day, is finally able to enter on the forks of the Ohio and say that it's now in British hands, something he's been trying to do for years and years and years. This kind of leaves a huge blow to the French because now not only is Frontenac gone, but now the entire Ohio River Valley is under British control and these Indian allies that the French had are not going to join back up in the war. Washington, now that he's accomplished, I guess, everything that he ever wanted in life, to open up the Ohio country, decides that he's had enough of this war. He's not going to push on to Niagara and Canada. He resigns his command of the Virginia Regiment, disappointed that he never received a commission of the British Army. But the war is not over yet, Caleb. we got a long ways to go. So next time, we're going to talk about my favorite fort, and that's Fort Niagara. Why is it your favorite fort? Because I've been there, and it's a really, really cool old stone fort. I actually have never seen it. I remember you and Dad and a bunch of other people from the church went to see it one year, and I was busy or something, but maybe I'll try and get there within the next few weeks. It's worth it. But we want to take a couple minutes and thank you, gentle listeners. Thank you so much, because over the last month, we received nearly a dozen new members into our Wild Sweet Potato Clan. And that's just uh, the U.S., members. We also have some Canadian uh, wild sweet potatoes up there. Yep. So we're going to mention a few of you folks. First off, we've got Dutch O'Class, Kev Bob 626, Maylock 1, Jay Blueberry, HerCFC, the great Chief Cornwall, <laughs> Splaldon Camp, Firstborn 18, V, Lacad, and we also have someone from the UK, DWY0210. They didn't try very hard at making a creative name. Now that people know they're going to get it read on the podcast, we're going to get some more entertaining ones, I'm sure. I'm sure. Anyway, folks, if you haven't yet, please leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah, actually, this week we were hovering right around 164 on uh, Top History Podcasts on iTunes, so that was pretty cool. And the only reason we do that is because you guys are subscribing to the show and uh, leaving reviews. That's what helps us stay bumped in the ratings, so we really appreciate that. You folks might not be aware, but if you check out our website, longhousepodcast.com, we're also kind of part of a network. Now we're a totally independent podcast, but we're part of a network called Dark Myths. And I would recommend that you check out one of their podcasts this month. Uh, it's called the Bohemian Podcast. It's really interesting. If you're into anything into Central Europe and Bohemian style. Also, don't forget, folks, you can email us at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Iroquois History, or, of course, like or message us on Facebook. Yeah, we post stuff throughout the week, uh, a lot of time, uh, links to research that we used for our episodes. Also, we try to put maps and pictures of people that we mention in our episodes on our Facebook and also on our website. So feel free to go over there and check it out. Also, any questions, please feel free to email us. If you guys have any interesting information that you've come across throughout your research and you think that we might like it, go ahead and send it to us. So check us out next week. We're going to talk about Fort Niagara. And then the episode after that, we hope to finish up our series on the French and Indian War. And we'll talk about the fall 
of New France. Bye, everybody.